Okay, so uh, I have had a very crazy week, and I am going to admit to you something that uh, every professor I've probably ever had in any place would probably tell me never to say. See, there he is, shaking his head. This is probably the least prepared, least polished me message I've had in a long time. Um, Nonetheless, I care a lot about this. Uh, this is a great word. It's a really important word. It's an, uh, so those of you who don't know, we're, we're going through um, words, words that help us think about the heart of God, words that, that help us especially think about God's heart um, for life, that as, as creator, God has a, a vested interest in seeing creation flourish and be alive. Um, and are in the words of Genesis 1 to, to uh, be fruitful and multiply and cover the face of the earth. And too often, I think, the church uh, begins to lose that sense of a God who is so, uh, so dedicated to life, um, to life that will never fade, right? Um, that the, the, the mission of Christ is to come and, and to impart to us a life that is incorruptible, a life without decay, a life that cannot be snuffed out. And so we've been talking about different words that kind of give us an image into that heart of God. Um, so I told you three weeks ago, I told you that we were going to, uh, we were going to move into the, old, into the New Testament this week. And then somebody begged me to, to, to do a, a Hebrew word. Um, and so we're going to go back into the Old Testament today, and we're going to look at a, a word from Genesis chapter 2. It's the word ezer, and it means help or helper. So this is Genesis chapter 2. It says, uh, the Lord God took the man. Okay, this is Adam, right? And, he, and he's just been created. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now let's think about the context of this, okay? If you go back to Genesis 1, about every paragraph has this line in it. It was good. Everything was good. Good water, good darkness, good light, good stars, good fish, good birds, uh, good grass. Um, even the bugs were good. And, and it's all good, 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 good. And then suddenly this very specific line, it is not good for this man to be alone. It is not good. This is the first not good thing, is aloneness. So, I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature was, was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the, for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman." 
for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. This word uh, that's translated here, that, that whole phrase that I had in bold, that, that is the word um, ezer. Some, uh, like the NIV and several others, in, instead of saying um, a, a helper as partner or some, whatever this one said, it'll say something like a suitable helper. Um, either way, what it's trying to say is that this is, deep, this is a deep word. You can't just translate it with that one word, helper. At its most basic, that's what it means, is a help or helper. Um, it's, it's a problematic word, too, because in our church history, uh, we, we've used this, this little passage, this little story, to, to uh, kind of put women in a specific box, right? That uh, the, the destiny of women is to help men. Um, that, that we've even gone so far as, you know, the women have to do all the sort of help work, like, like work in the kitchen or clean the house or whatever women's work is. We've used this, this word here for that, which is really dangerous because the only person for whom this word is ever used ever again is God himself. Every other time that the word ezer is used in the Old Testament is in reference to God. None of us are going to say that God has to work in a certain place. None of us are going to confine God to a certain spot. So I don't think that's a very helpful image of translating this, this word is to, to, to focus in on kind of subservient sort of help. I don't think that's the point. In fact, every time uh, here several of the uh, of the occurrences, it, it occurs 21 times. So these two times in Genesis and the other, the other 19 are in reference to God. And most of those references actually follow a very similar uh, a phrase. It says, the Lord is our help and our shield, or something to do with warfare, something to do with help in battle, something to do with help in times of tremendous needs where the stakes are so high that it's life and death that God jumps in and is helpful. And he's called an Ezer. Just to let you know, there are other words that mean helper. But this particular word is deep and strong. It, 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 it shows, uh, it's often paired in the Psalms with the, the idea of God as a fortress, which is why Tim picked, uh, I assume is why Tim picked the, the, the song from Martin Luther, right? A 500-year-old song about uh, mighty fortress is our God. That, that's what, what we want to evoke for you is this image of God as tremendous help, fortress kind of help. And so this, is, this word, again, is not just about the relationship between a husband and a wife, though I think it has uh, uh, excellent potential. Um, anytime that I do premarital counseling, we talk about this word because it is, it is a crucial kind of idea. Um, but it is, it's broad and it's strong. And uh, it comes from the very heart of God. And it comes from that heart of God to see man, see Adam live and prosper and flourish, which is why it's so appropriate for this particular passage, for this particular series about God who cares about life. You know, we, uh, we live in, in a world that for some time is just... Uh, 
absolutely and totally and utterly fascinated by an individual being able to rise above um, whatever challenge without any help. Right? I remember in uh, like eighth grade, I did a biography of my grandfather, and I used the term, we were learning about American history, and we were learning about my grandfather's generation, and what we called my grandfather's generation were rugged individualists, right? The, the generation that, that uh, came out of World War I, out of this, this great uh, desperation that turned into an economic depression, and then they, they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, and they were rugged individualists who built this country out of their sense of individualism. And I, built, I wrote this paper about my grandfather and all the ways that he, he had fit that model, because he had. Um, he, he had. He had lived in, in, in tremendous hardness uh, and difficulty during the, the Great Depression. His, his dad actually was a Church of God pastor, um, which is really weird to me when I say out loud, because I never, I never met his dad, and we didn't go to a Church of God, and here I am. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for, you know, for Sunday dinner, um, they would eat whatever the congregation brought to them, and then they'd have to keep, keep it, and he had uh, for, to last as long as they could make it last. And, and they, my, my grandfather would not eat a sandwich even to the day of his death when he was 82, because what they had were large sandwiches um, most Sunday afternoons. And he just, he just sandwiches were, were not going to enter his mouth ever again. And so uh, and he, he made a life for himself as an electrician. But it, it's Genesis 1 is not about rugged individualism. What God set out, when God said, I want life for you, it's actually not good for you to do that alone. I, I love to tell people, you can't even make your breakfast by yourself. Right? You can't. Just think of what you had. Maybe Some of us probably had eggs for breakfast, right? How many of you picked the eggs, grabbed the eggs out of the coop to get that, and then cracked them yourselves, right? And even if you did that, I bet you didn't lay the eggs yourself. <laughs> Right? Okay, let's say you had oatmeal. Did you grow the oats? Did you grind the oats to make sure that they would actually taste good? Let's say you did all that. I don't think any, I know all of you fairly well. I'm guessing none of you did, but let's just say for the sake of argument that you did indeed do that. Did you cause rain to fall on the oats so that the oats would grow? You cannot make breakfast by yourself. We live in a world where individualism is utterly a myth because we actually deeply rely on other people's help. It's as if at the foundation of the world someone said, this is not going to work if you do it alone. So you're going to have to help each other. But we love the stories. We love the stories of people doing it on their own. I think we're actually addicted to that. And, and you know, for our culture, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. But in the church, we cannot, we cannot, cannot lift that up as a model for the Christian life. Because at the very foundation of the world, our God said, do not do it this way. So the word, um, this, this idea of Ezer... I don't know, I could talk until I'm blue in the fa face to try and convince you that you need help. Um, you do. Uh, it's, uh, you, can, you can box your shadow all you want, but you're never going to knock your shadow over. Um, 
That's about what doing life on your own is like. The, uh, so we're, well, instead, we're going to move on and we're going to talk about kind of the different, the different areas of Scripture where, where help is either offered, described, or prescribed, right? Where God basically says you need help. Kind of the different forms of his heirs, right? And so the first one is obvious, I hope. <laughs> and that is, we need Jesus. We desperately need Jesus. One of my favorite passages is, uh, is, is Luke chapter 16. And, and Jesus tells this wonderful parable. Um, so Jesus tells 40 parables throughout the Gospels. Okay, 40 different parables. And he never names any of his characters except one time. In Luke chapter 16, the one time that he names his character. And he names him Lazarus. Any idea what Lazarus means? God is my help. God is my help. And this story of Lazarus is, it is a classic example of Jesus turning everything on its head. All right, so Lazarus is this poor guy who sits outside of a rich man's, uh, a rich man's uh, home. And, the, and while the rich man is eating sumptuous fare, uh, he's eating you know, wonderful food, food that nobody in this world in this time period could afford except just the top 1% of 1%. And Lazarus sits outside of his, his, his home and every day, and the rich man pays no attention to him. And, and Lazarus... Uh, has sores all over his body and begs for, for any food that he lives off of. And, and the dogs, the dogs come and they lick the sores on Lazarus' body. Jesus is being profoundly ironic, right? That, that while, uh, while the rich man is eating meat, which most people couldn't afford to eat except once or twice a year in this world, um, dogs are eating Lazarus while he's alive, licking his sores. And so the two men die. And uh, the rich man is not helped by God in his afterlife. The rich man goes to hell, and it's torturous for him. And he. And he Lazarus dies, and God helps Lazarus. In fact, it, it is this wonderful image of Lazarus in the arms of Abraham. It says in, in the, the translation kind of gets sort of weak in a lot of English translations. I think it's a, uh, um, one of the King James versions or the spinoffs of those says something along the lines of, he holds Lazarus in his bosom, right, like a child. The place that you hold a child that you dearly love. And so God is tremendous help to Lazarus when nobody else would help him at all. He helps him in this unbelievable way. And then the rich man has the nerve, has the nerve to say, I'm thirsty. I think he's talking to like Moses or something. I forget. I'd have to look it up. He's talking to, to somebody and he says, I'm thirsty. Could you have Lazarus bring me some water? Christ is help in a way that nobody on earth can or will ever come to your aid. 
We have to. We have to in our relationship with Jesus often admit that we cannot do it alone. So many of the stories of Jesus are about people in desperation who need Jesus in a profound way. And if they're going to go, they have to admit, I can't do it on my own. So many of them come to the end of their rope when they reach out to Jesus and he helps. We should all be Lazaruses. Kind of the next area of, uh, of a relationship where we need help is, I think, just the extended church, right? Um, I was thinking about this. I, I almost did my entire sermon about this, and then that seemed really silly, so I didn't. Um, but I, I, was at, uh, I was in a, another pastor's office this week, um, and, and he had this book on his shelf. It was, it's uh, called Front, Front Porch Tales by Philip Gully. Okay, and, and Philip Gully is a, uh, he's a Quaker from Indiana. He grew up in Richmond, Indiana, which is about an hour and a half, two hours from where I grew up. And uh, my parents had his book. My mom and dad never read it. <laughs> and, uh, and I was at this point in my life where I, uh, I was running and I was, I, was, I was really running well, except when it mattered, right? I was a choke artist. I would just, I would go to big meets and I would psych myself out and I would run just horribly. In fact, my senior year, I, I was ranked like 10th in the state and I didn't qualify for the state meet because I ran so, so poorly, so horribly at the meet where you qualify. Um, and I was inconsolable for like two or three weeks. I was, I was uh, um, less than admirable in my loss. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and during the, the track season then, um, I started picking up this book. because I, I just needed to get my mind off of something, and nobody, nobody seemed to be able to ease my mind before I would run in these big meets. And so I started picking up uh, Philip Gully's front, front Porch Tales, which are all about just like how God shows up in really simple interactions in his neighborhood. And, uh, and I began to be relaxed before these meets. Um, and, and for, I would just read one of them, they were really short stories, so I'd just read one on the bus ride to, to every meet, and it, so the book lasted me like a year, and, uh, and for that year, I just felt so much more at ease. Like, here I was with this really kind of simple problem, and I was a good runner. I didn't need help doing something that I was bad at. I actually needed help doing something I was good at. Too often we think that, that, that help should be confined to these places where we're not very good at things. Um, but here I was, and the extended church was helping me just by picking up a book from a, a brother in Christ. I, just as a funny aside, um, he says in that book, I remember very clearly the day that I read, I read this, he says in this book that, uh, that his family didn't have a TV, okay? And he goes on and on about how great that is. And, and I was like, you know, 18 or 19, and I thought, that's the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Why on earth would anybody do that? Guess who doesn't own a television? <clears throat> ten, 10 years later, 12 years later. Um, so, yeah, anyway, be careful what you say to your help. Um, <laughs> the, uh, and he's right about all that. It was one of the most wonderful decisions my wife and I ever made. And now you're going to say to me, that's crazy. Watch out. <laughs> Watch out. Um, 
the, so, so here we are in this, this, this area of, of life where um, we need help. And there's, there's this gigantic church that we would hope can help us. Maybe it's an author that you're never ever going to meet. Maybe it's a speaker at a conference. Maybe it's a, a story that you find on a blog online of somebody doing something um, where they're following. Whatever it is, where the church, Paul talks about this all the time, that the broader church should encourage us, which is a way of saying they should help us. Um, the, the, next, the next area, so when... Uh, when God puts Adam in the garden, he gives him a mission, right? He doesn't just say, hey, lounge around and uh, I'll make sure that the monkeys drop grapes in your mouth or something like that. Um, and and the, the, the birds will flap their wings and keep you cool. No, he says, I mean, he says that he put the man in the garden with a mission, till it and keep it, right? So the very first um, words to Adam in, in this particular passage are words of, of ministry, right? Of, of mission, of, of work. And that, that Adam needs help in that work that he's doing. So that the, the partner, the, the helper that God creates and finds for Adam is, is supposed to enhance his ability to do what God has created Adam to do. And so I think we all need kind of another circle of, of friendship, of, of help, where we have people in our lives that can help us do ministry, that can help us enhance our gifts, that can help us do the things that God is calling us to do. I think about, um, for me, um, writing, right? Like, I love to write. Many of you know that I love to write. And, and if I care at all about the writing, I almost always send it to somebody to edit it, right? to, to, to look at it for me. And I have never once... In years and years and years and years of writing, I've never sent my writing off to somebody and my writing not be improved by that. Again, that's something I think I'm decent at. I'm no William, William Shakespeare, but I'm good at writing, right? Like, I'm okay at writing. It's a gift. And people make me better at the gift. When I do ministry by myself, there's nothing more heartache, more heart-wrenching for me when I feel alone in ministry. That is, that is completely and utterly terrifying. There were, there were eight articles this week um, about eight different high-profile pastors who, uh, who quit their churches last Sunday. And the, the statistics are just horrifying. There's like, I think it's like 10 times as many pastors leaving every year as entering ministry in America. And that, I think, is, is because it is not good to be alone. Ministry is not something we're meant to do alone, even if it's something incredibly sacred that you feel called to. Like, I don't know, like taking photos or something like that, that, that is, is very uniquely individual and very uniquely uh, beneficial by you being the one that looks through the lens and being present in the place that you are. You know, even then... If you are all alone, it's a terrifying thing that costs you so much. So that Jesus has 72 people who do ministry with him in the Gospels. 72 that he incorporates into ministry as he goes. 
That's right, the creator of the universe asked for help. <laughs> so, whatever your excuse is, <laughs> it's probably not very good. Um, so we have this, this other, you know, and, and for me, I would look around this room as that kind of my Ezer, my helpers in ministry, one would hope would come from my church. <laughs> and then a little smaller, right, and again from Jesus' life, right, then he's, then he's got 12 people who don't just do ministry with him, but people who do life with him. Because we need social help. We need help um, with people who are going to pray for us, and not just pray for us that, uh, that you know, that are going to read it in a bulletin and not know all the particulars, but people who actually know what's going on in our life. People who can help us on a, on a deep spiritual level. This is, I think, the, the best example of this in my life was my Bible study group in college where we, we just, we knew everything about each other. We ate meals together. We, we, uh, we hung out together. We did life together. You may not think about that as help, but I mentioned last week when I was talking about loneliness, about how you know, even my three-year-old wants to know if he has friends or not. You know? He wants to ask, do I have friends, Daddy? We need that. We need that help. Even if you don't like it. It doesn't have to be 12 people. You know, for some of us, that's like terrifying. And that's okay. Come up with your own number, as long as it's not zero. Um, and then finally, we get to, to what God actually creates in Eve, right? Is, is an, an intimate person, a spouse. I hesitate to use the word spouse because you have to remember that, that Jesus and Paul both said that it is perfectly acceptable to not get married, Right? And so, so I, I hesitate to, to, to this only be about, um, about marriage because there are people in life who, who are not going to get married and that is, um, that's okay. You can have a different kind of intimacy with a close friend. Um, the, the New Testament has two words for love, or three words for, four words for love. <laughs> Let me just add on, right? And there, there's the, the one that I think about for this is, is phileo. Friend, it's, a, it's an intimacy between friends. We need those one or two people. Or three people, right? Jesus, he even cuts it down from the 12, right? He gets the three. Peter, James, and John, who he asked to go pray with him in the garden. And he asks on several, he asks them to come to the transfiguration when he goes up on the mountain and, God, and, and Jesus appears with, with Moses and Elijah. There are just these three that are invited into that. So we need this, this deep intimacy. When I, and I think about this in the, in the context of marriage. In my marriage, I think about how there are things that I will never tell you. Right? I will never, ever, ever tell you. I, 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 many of you know that I am very dedicated to being authentic, telling you my weaknesses, and, and these sermons are about me as well as about you, but there are things about my marriage that I will never, ever, ever say up here because the relationship is too sacred to share. The relate, you have, well, you have to have those kinds of friendships, those kinds of relationships where we have help There are ways in which my wife helps me 
that you have no right to know. Um, I want to end today with, with uh, <laughs> as many of you know, I like icons. Um, I find them, as a history nerd, I find them really fascinating. I even ha I have an icon of John Chrysostom. This is, this is an icon on a, uh, on a church roof in, uh, in the Mediterranean area. Um, so up on the roof, uh, amongst other icons, there's a, this icon of, of John Chrysostom. And the idea of icons is really super interesting um, because they, they started as this idea that, so, so Christians have always believed that, that once you die, you know, you, you um, either some Christians believe at the end of time and some people believe it's just right after you die, but, but that God kind of uh, makes you a new creation, right? That, 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 that your sinful nature dies and the only thing that is left is your life in Christ, okay? And so they, they, uh, they started painting these pictures, and the idea is that, that the, the icons, the saints, are supposed to, to be looking at you from what they look like in heaven. They're glorified bodies, right? They're, they're glorified in Christ. And what they're supposed to be windows into who Christ makes people. They're supposed to be inspiring us the people who've gone before, the brothers and sisters who have lived their lives for Jesus, that from the other side we imagine what they look like. Obviously, we're probably really not right about what they look like. I, he's got to be happier than that in heaven, right? <laughs> this is John Chrysostom. I'm not going to go into his story, but he's, he's near and dear to my heart as an is heir. He's, uh, he died in the year 406. And he helps me all the time. That's the reason I bought an icon of him. Because uh, I love the memory of who he was in Jesus. And the way he, he gave his life for Christ. I want to be reminded by that. I want to be encouraged by that. And so I, I think about this passage that I think if I were going to just pick a passage to be a definition for Ezer, for help, this would be it. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we're surrounded by people who can help us. Right? He, the author of Hebrews has just written this chapter 11 who talks about all the heroes of faith and how we should be inspired by their faith. Because so we are surrounded by people who can help us, who can witness and testify to the, what Jesus has done. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, looking to Jesus, that he's going to help every other relationship. He's going to help this process. He's going to be the author and perfecter and pioneer of the process of the Christian life that thrives. Who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God? Who else would you want to trust? Who else would you want to put your help, your hope and help in than someone sitting at the right hand of the throne of God who has also died for you, who has also gone to the place of vulnerability, gone to the place where he needed help. He's lived a life like ours. So let us, none of us, 
None of us walk out today carrying a prideful notion that we do not need one another, that we do not need Jesus' help in the little things and in the big things, that we do not need close friends. And if, you, if the help has been denied you, because that, that is one of the greatest pains in all of life, it's when you need help and nobody will give it to you, when you find yourself as Lazarus. The two words I have for you is one is that God is still your help. That God will not turn his back on you. And secondly, risk again because there are wonderful people in this room who have been help to people who abused them and hurt them. There are people in this room who will care deeply about you. So let us all Let us all find our Azare in Christ and let him show us all the different ways that people around us can be of help to us. Let's pray. Jesus, I am so bad at life by myself. Life on my own stinks. I need you. I need the people you've planted in my life, God. I I need that humility to say that I need help. I know that, that many of us are so good at coming up with excuses of why we ought to do it on our own. Why we ought to face this or that. Maybe it's we're ashamed of it. Maybe it's that we've been living our whole life trying to prove to people that we don't need help. God, help us. (laughs) Help us help each other. And God, when it's difficult, when when we want to give somebody help and it's it's too hard and they they are are using us, God, I just pray that you would give us wisdom and creativity and the, the, uh, the courage to ask each other to bear those burdens together to help those those who are burdening us, God. And, and I pray for those who, uh, who are too afraid to help. God, encourage us and, and show us that the, the same spirit that was alive in John Chrysostom and in the apostles and in um, and the many, many, many brothers and sisters who have come and gone and done heroic things and wonderful things that maybe we don't even know about, that that same spirit, God, that animates the church, that is the church's life, is alive in them. Fill us up. Make us a place of mutual help. Make us a place of as heirs, God. Make us a place that helps in a way that produces your life. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen.